You are listening to the Living Jewishly podcast, a show about community, a thriving, welcoming, validating, open to everyone Jewish community, one that celebrates our differences and honors our sameness. We're inviting you to explore your own sense of Jewish identity as we build our community. So we're here with Bluth. The hardest thing for me as a rabbi is that Elliot doesn't let me say what I really want. Oh, oh I'm really suppressing you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're trying. The, you're you're, you're subverting my, my, my need to engage in traditional thought without traditional obligation. So <laughs> the thing I'm thinking about in your geodesic dome <laughs> model, which I love, of course, is I would like to find one morning you look up and there's this shape of a human being on the dome and it's a Hasidic man from Tel Aviv who couldn't come in because he was afraid of what he'd find in there but he still wanted to hear your Torah just like the story of Hillel I love that story and uh, that vision of the man on the geodesic dome Okay. Ultimately, are you saying you want her to look up one morning and there's a Hasidic guy on the roof of the dome who, despite the fact that you don't that think that's creepy, you think that's beautiful? No, I think that's beautiful because it will tell you that what's going on in there is so valuable that even people who, on on a temporal level, are afraid to walk in still want to hear the Torah. That's going no, on no, in there. no. You see, that's a big problem. I'm going to tell you a story. All right. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, you see, you open the door. And now I'm walking. Fine. Down. Walk okay. right through the door. You know, it's like on Perry Mason, when the att- district attorney used to say something, and then Perry Mason would say, "You open the door, so now I get to ask this question." Go ahead, Perry. Okay. When I ran an LGBT panel here in Toronto three years ago, and no Orthodox synagogue wanted to house it, no synagogue wanted to house it, frankly. So we ran it at a school. So I'm. We're doing the session, and I'm like looking around the room, and then I see slowly filtering into the back of the room are like Hasidic people, Haredi people. So part of me is like, great, I'm glad you came. And part of me is like, it's really sad that you like, you had to kind of slip in here, you waited till the program started, you were like on the roof, you know? So I don't like the idea of people having to go on the roof to get the stuff. I like the idea that like, we create a world where they would feel good, and I know Bluth's going to be super friendly, where they can knock on the front door and enter in. Because part of the problem in the Jewish world is that people who have real needs of certain kinds of alternative messaging feel like they can't enter, that they've got to like sit on the roof to get it. I, I, agree. I agree with your objective. I love Bluth's determination, and I believe you will actually do this, and I believe you'll actually be successful. But what I also believe is that humanity always falls short of its own capabilities. And ultimately, I think that's, that, that story is about transitional stages. I can tell you that one of the reasons that the video that you did of that event is watched so many times is because you are actually allowing people to walk into that room without having to show themselves. Because the whole story of LGBTQ issues is the fear of expressing yourself. It's just, it's the fear of being able to speak. Well, if there's a fear of being able to attach yourself to the fundamental beauty of Judaism because someone will get mad at you, they didn't say every prayer in the book, or God will punish you, the fact that someone's up there means they've exposed themselves by being up there, but at the same time, they're desperately craving something they can't get, 
and they're taking a huge risk. And I admire that risk taking, even if it means hiding long enough that you feel safe to come out. Okay. There's many kinds of coming out. And I agree with you. Okay. What? Hold yeah, on. No, I do. Let's I mark this you. time and date. No, because it was, you know, they don't have the, the security yet to come off That's the roof. That's correct. But we have to make a big effort to make them know it's fine. You don't have to be on the roof. You I, don't have to come in the back or come in the front of the roof. I also think that there's spaces that make that a safer, that, that make that safer. Like when we dove in on the beach, I have a, uh, I run a minion on the beach in Tel Aviv um, sometimes. <laughs> and, um, it's in like a very public space, and I found there that the people who joined have been secular Tel Avivis, American Jerusalem, you know, hippie from people, um, some like friends who are settlers in Bat Ain, and there's and then all the people who walk by, which have included like Breslovers who are walking by, or or tourists, German tourists who are walking by, and there's something about um, being on the beach that I think allows people to be there in curiosity and to taste whatever is going on without saying, okay, now I've stepped into a denominational synagogue and I need to like own all of that. You know, there's, I think the, the, the public space nature of it kind of helps and that it's, yeah, I think just alternative spaces help with that. How do we, how do we create, not everybody's going to be able to go to the Tel Aviv beach, but how do we create spaces that are, that are welcoming for people? Especially with the idea that prayer yeah. far more than Torah study or, or conversation yeah. really divides people yeah different styles are for different people yeah. and they can't seem to figure it out so I want to draw on permaculture for a second which is like a system of organic agriculture I lived in an eco uh, an eco a radical eco commune in Tel Aviv for a short amount of time which is a sustainable commune in the center of Tel Aviv where uh, everyone eats uh, a raw vegan diet. We sh <laughs> it was quite radical. We like showered into buckets and then used the water from the shower to then water the plants. Like everything was connected. All of the soap, all of the products in the place were very, um, uh, we made them at home and it was all organic and natural products. But something that I learned in that space is that there, in, in permaculture, there's a, there's a value that nothing should only have one purpose. Everything should have multiple functions. So for example, if you have a roof on a farm for a kitchen, the roof one provides shade and protection for the kitchen, but you should also connect to it the ability to capture water um, and then and save the water. And so, so well, I guess that's three already. So you have like protection for the kitchen, you have, you know, the, the roof will go over, will provide shade and you can collect water from the roof. Point being that everything has more than one, serves more than one function. And so in this radical commune in Tel Aviv that I ended up kind of running away from because it was very intense. Their spaces, a bedroom wasn't just a bedroom. A bedroom during the day became a workshop space and like all the beds were sort of pushed up against the side and the spaces were multifunctional. And I think that, I think two things about spaces. One is that spaces should serve multiple purposes. So it's not necessarily comfortable to someone to show up to a space that's designated only for prayer, but a space that's also used for gathering and for art and for meditation and yoga and prayer, I think, is a much more attractive and accessible space for people and different types of people. Um, and the other thing uh, is something that I feel really strongly about after being yeshiva for the past three years in a basement without any windows is that the sort of yeshiva model of spaces does, doesn't pay attention to space. We, you know, we sit with a book, we're crouched over a table, it doesn't matter what the lighting is. And I think our spaces have to be beautiful. And I think beautiful spaces with, with 
light streaming through windows and with a lot of plants and aliveness in the space actually brings people in. You yeah. mentioned that you've been sitting in in a yeshiva space for three years. I think any listener would think, wow, she was on a radical Tel Aviv commune and she was sitting in, in yeshiva for three years. And I think they'd want to know um, how that works for you and why you decided to get ordination through the Orthodox yeah. stream. So I went to yeshiva and got Orthodox ordination um, primarily because I felt like the education was it was incredibly rigorous, incredibly text-based, incredibly rooted in tradition. And it feels to me like those of us who are sort of dancing in the world of tradition and accessibility and relevance to to for, for those of us who are also bridging communities between like religious people and secular people and so on, it, it felt very important that my training was very, very, very rooted in text, in tradition, and with those kind of skills and, and um, tools, I could go on to to share that kind of wisdom and connect it to spirituality and connect it to modernity and all these and, and social justice and modern issues um, with a real fluency in the language. Um, my program, I think it's the only place in the world that gives a woman access to a real lambdas education. How would you translate well, that? Well, <laughs> you're talking about like a rigorous textual education. Yeah, in, uh, in, 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 in it's, it's It's not the only program that does that, but it's, it's one of the few programs that does that with an outcome that women would be ordained. In yes. other words, women can go to high-level institutions and learn Talmud and so on, but under the auspices of Rabbi Herzl Hefter, and I guess also Rabbi Daniel Sperber, you actually, there was an ordination piece at the end for mm -hmm. you and other men and women with whom you learned together. Having said that, yeah. do you feel that the texts you learned about Jewish law are really sufficient ground to say, I'm a rabbi now? In other words, do you feel that there's an other aspects that people should be learning before they call themselves a rabbi? Yeah, I don't think that halachic education, and just to, to differentiate, you're referring to women's places of higher study for women that learn high-level Gemara and Talmud. Um, I would say this might be the only place for halakhic okay. learning. Okay. Um, and additionally, it comes, you know, it has a smichak, the ordination component. In terms of rabbinic training, I don't think a halakhic education is sufficient, but I also think it's incredibly, incredibly important. And I think a lot of the rabbinical programs in North America um, fall really short on their halakha training. And that might be because modern liberal rabbis in this day and age aren't going to be answering halakhic questions. But I still think that the halakhic process and what you understand through learning it from the inside is so, it's an unbelievable process. And it's actually quite expansive. Like instead of limiting, I feel like the more, we, the more one learns halakha, the more expansive it is. And I feel like there's something in that process that's really, really, really important to be a rabbi and to be connected to a tradition of rabbis and what rabbis have been in the past. And I would say that, of course, pastoral training is incredibly important. And I would like to see, you know, more entrepreneurial training as well. And in, in my program, we had classes on pastoral care, on public policy in Israel in particular. And, and those were all great. They weren't emphasized. And I think the program could have been stronger by emphasizing those more. So if I hear you correctly, you're saying that the halakhic process training mm -hmm. gives you the self courage or self-strength to feel like you have the power to make decisions and not just about Jewish law but also about life and the way you think about people and their needs 
and so on. I'm, I, correct yeah. if I'm wrong, but I feel that halacha is really a gateway into understanding who you're talking to and applying a formula as opposed to the formula and applying it to everybody. Yeah, but I think it's more than just the courage and the and the skill set to do that. I also think that the knowledge coming and learning halacha is really important. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.